Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative. It could be your siblings, like a brother or sister, or the victim could be like an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, or any other close relative. You would think that, you know, if you ended up killing your parents or something like that, that that wouldn't automatically warrant a life sentence or maybe, you know, 50 years or something like that. But mostly all of the murderers in this season have already served their time and have been released depending on uh, the basis of why you killed your parents. Um, and for those listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, let me just say right now, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because that case has already been profiled for TV one several times. And that's pretty much old news. Now you can already check all that out on my payback episode, my justice by any means episode, or you can click on the episode entitled um, any part, the, the podcast episode entitled why I do what I do. But anyway, for all that being said for this season, season eight, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers who, for whatever reason, have murdered their mother or their father or their grandparents. Basically killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering a parent or a grandparent in particular. So for this season, season eight, uh, I mean, sorry, for this episode, the murderer that I'm going to profile is 30-year-old Michael Edward Joseph Ruiz. And just like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention or needs to be reopened or something because basically not a lot, if anything, is being done about it anymore. And the unsolved murder that I'm going to profile for this episode is the shooting murder of 23-year-old Raquel Lavette Harris. I hate to say it. They say people supposedly aren't born bad or that supposedly are not born with a defect or something that makes them do horrific shit like beat somebody to death or burn them alive or some outlandish, you know, torturous stuff like that to really cause hurt and pain to somebody. But some people, I'm not going to lie, they just seem like they just completely screwed up. Like, ain't no screws loose. They just some fucked up ass people out here, like mentally. And it ain't nobody's fault but themselves. It ain't because how they was raised. It ain't because their environment. They just literally are just fucked up in the head. This next case of parasite involves a dude not murdering his parents, but savagely killing his elderly grandparents. Spoiled. Selfish. Rebellious. 
those are the words I would use to describe this next murderer. 30-year-old Michael Edward Joseph Ruiz did not get along with his wealthy grandfather. But his grandparents let him live with them while he quote while Michael quote unquote got his life together. Michael's grandfather was 88-year-old Dr. Walter E. Locke, E. E. Locke, who was a renowned surgeon who worked at John Hopkins Hospital. This surgeon was now retired and lived with his wife, 81-year-old Dr. Mary Hydlock, who had worked as an obstetrician. Mary was also retired after she had given up her private practice to raise her five children. Together, the couple enjoyed their retirement and spent most of, most of their time in their home in the 200 block of Stratford Road in the Guilford area of Baltimore. Now, y'all know Guilford is that old money area up there by Rolling Park. But anyway, at some point in their retirement, they allowed their grandson, Michael, to live with them. Michael was one of those type of grandkids where he had went to private school at St. Paul's in Baltimore County, where most of his friends said that Michael was a normal, average, just a normal, regular dude. Michael went to, uh, he went on to go to Towson State University and he even landed a job as a mental health worker at Shepherd and Enoch Wright Hospital in 1988. He had all of this going for him, but at some point during the midst of, of all of this, he moves in with his grandparents because I guess basically he couldn't handle finances and he was blowing money and stuff like that. Michael's grandparents helped him out financially, occasionally, not all the time. They even loaned him a thousand dollars for him to go back to college. And this is back in this was in uh, you know, nineteen the early nineties. So I guess a thousand dollars was a decent amount of money. Um, but they gave him that for Michael to use it to go to college, but he used it on other stuff. Michael thought that since his grandparents they had the money, that it was their job or their duty or basically their responsibility to spend it on him. I mean, some of these grandkids be off the chain. Michael thought that it was their obligation, so to speak. Just because they had it, and just because he was their blood, he was their 30-year-old grandson. But Michael thought that his grandfather was being too strict. He was too overbearing, too whatever. I mean, it's his own house. Michael's grandfather had rules, and if that man said he wanted him to dress in a goddamn trench coat every night and howl at the moon, guess what? If you stand in this house, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do it. So, now what? Anyway, sorry. I had to dip out of that because that, that irks me. That's like triggering. Like, come on now. Anyway, things were already tense at the home, and Michael made things worse when he started dating a nurse that also worked at, um, she worked at Shepherd Pratt Hospital with him. That's how they met. Michael's grandfather didn't like him dating um, a married woman because, like, the woman was still married to her husband, although they were separated. Although they, like, had separated and everything, Michael's grandfather was old school and old-fashioned, and he believed that, you know, the woman should have been completely divo divorced from her husband before she started dating his grandson. Either way, Michael's grandfather didn't like her, 
and he didn't like Michael seeing her and parading her around the family and all of that. He was like, you know, she's a married woman and, you know, that's wrong and stuff like that. And tensions grew even hotter between them. And they had the nerd be in the same house. So Michael was like, you know what? Fuck all of this. I'm going to date who I want to date. Fuck who I want to fuck. Do what I want to do. I'm 30 years old. So in November of 1993, Michael did move out of his grandparents' house and got his own one-bedroom apartment in the first block of Pinewood Place at the Dunfield Apartments um, in the Nottingham area of Baltimore, which is still kind of sort of close to his grandparents, you know, in a way, give or take. But at, at Michael's own apartment, he could do whatever he wanted to do. He had that freedom. Um, but his grandfather still didn't like him parading his married girlfriend around family and bragging about her to, you know, his friends and everything like that. He was embarrassed about it. When the family had a, a planned trip to go visit Michael's favorite aunt who lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Michael's grandfather was like, this is a trip for family only and not that married bitch in so many words. And he ordered Michael to not even bring her nowhere near the family. He's like, look, stop parading her around. This is serious. Like, you know, end this. He was embarrassed. This enraged Michael. Like a teenager, he's like, you know, I'm going to do what I want to anyway. This made Michael even madder. It made him so mad that he was like, you know what? I can't bring home vacation. I can't take her on family vacation. Watch this. Watch what I do. Guess what? You want to act like that? This is what I do. So Michael stole his grandfather's Visa credit card out his wallet, dressed up in surgical scrubs to make it seem like he was his grandfather, marched into a travel agency, pretended like he was his grandfather, and booked a $3,000 trip to a resort in Jamaica for him and his married girlfriend. Now, that's a teenager move right there. A 30-year-old doing this? Yeah, we beyond fighting. I'm called. I'm pressing charges on that one. But this is a teenage move. Like, it just seems right there that this is something that teenagers would do, thinking they're not going to get in trouble. $3,000? So he did all this just to spite his grandfather and to piss him off and also possibly because he knew nothing was going to happen to him if he did it. Like, what's going to happen? He knew they weren't going to do nothing. They probably weren't going to press charges. But after booking the trip to Jamaica... Michael was still angry, still pissed, because the fact that he did have his own place, he could basically do whatever he wanted, he did have that freedom, but Michael, he, he still couldn't live off of his grandparents like he had been doing. He still couldn't spend their money, he still couldn't whine and, you know, I don't have no money and blah blah blah. Michael was angry because he had to pay his own bills, he had to grow up like a big boy. And his grandparents had stopped helping him out at all and loaning him any money. So Michael was angry because nobody in the family liked his new girlfriend, his new married girlfriend or still married girlfriend. And the more he thought about it, the more angrier he got, the more pissed off he got. He's just stewing in his own anger. He decided he was going to do something about it. So five days after Michael booked that trip to Jamaica... With his grandfather's credit card, during the early morning hours of August 14th, 1994, Michael crept out of his bed at his apartment 
looked over at his sleep at his girlfriend who was laying next to him in the bed and got dressed. Michael thought about how easy he had it at his grandparents' house. He thought about how he really didn't basically have to worry about nothing financially. And because now he had to pay his own bills, he ain't like that shit too much. So Michael drove over to his grandparents' house. And when he got there, I don't care what nobody say, he had a plan. He let himself in with the key that he still had. They always keep the key. But before Michael went in, he grabbed a Louisville Slugger baseball bat that was on the porch. Once Michael was inside the home, he quietly tiptoed up the back steps, snuck in his grandparents' bedroom, and beat both his grandfather and his grandmother to death with a goddamn baseball bat. And his grandparents never even knew what hit them because he cowardly did this while they were in their bed sleeping. Michael's grandfather, 88-year-old Dr. Walter E. Locke, had been a well-known surgeon who specialized in complicated ear surgery. He, he mastered his skills, and then later on, he became an expert in nasal surgery. And he had been a founding member and president of the American Rhinological Society, which their mission is to promote excellence in the care of patients who have disorders of the nose, sinuses, and throat through research, education, and ad advocacy. This doctor had been a pioneer in the area of ear, nose, and throat medicine, and he had been a professor of ophthalmology, of auto, I'm not even going to even try to pronounce this one, <laughs> but Dr. Locke was known as an excellent doctor, I'll say that, who often treated patients for free. The doctor came to Baltimore all the way from Austria in 1950, and he had been living over here ever since. Dr. Locke had made medicine his life, but he was also fiercely devoted to his wife, who had also been a doctor. They was a loyal couple who seemed happily married. An autopsy, autopsy later determined that the couple had been hit so many times with their baseball bat all throughout their bodies that it was literally too many blows to even count. Can you imagine that? Right after Michael beat his grandparents to death with the baseball bat while wearing medical gloves, Michael ransacked the house to make the murder seem like it was some sort of robbery gone bad. Michael took a shower in the house that's how comfortable he felt. That's that's psycho. That's psychotic. He took a He felt comfortable enough to take a shower in the house to wash off all the blood that he had on his on him. Then he drove back to his apartment complex, crept right back in the bed with his girlfriend, fell asleep, and within a few hours, Michael was on a comfortable flight heading to Jamaica with his new girlfriend. Like ain't nothing happened. That's psychotic. A few hours after he left, around 1 p.m., Michael's mother, she went to her parents' home when she couldn't reach them by phone. When they wouldn't answer the phone, she got a little suspicious, so she was like, let me go over here. And when she got to their home, she could see that a glass plane 
a, like a glass glass pane on the kitchen door above the door lock had been broken, and the screen door had also been cut, and the door was slightly open. She called the police, and when they showed up, that's when they found both of their batteredly beaten bodies. When it was discovered that Michael's grandparents showed discrepancies and inconsistencies and unexplained withdrawals in a bank account, especially after the police started, you know, trying to figure out who did this. And when it showed that Michael was responsible for those withdrawals, combined with the fact that Michael was conveniently missing, the police ordered Michael's mother to see if she can reach him and like now. Plus, Michael became a person of interest when it seemed like this break-in, this supposedly burglary break-in thing was staged because nothing of value was even taken out the house. Michael's mother finally did reach him three days after the murders, but Michael was already in Jamaica chilling. Michael's um, mother told him over the phone what happened to his grandparents and that he needed to get his ass back to the States immediately. So Michael cut his five-day vacation in Jamaica short to three days, and on Wednesday, August 27, 1994, Michael flew back to the United States, and after he landed in the States, he was arrested about eight hours later and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Um, Michael confessed shortly after he got arrested. Not only did he confess to Baltimore County detectives that he beat his grandfather to death in a blind rage because he couldn't take his father's strict discipline um, and cold demeanor anymore, but he showed them where he had hidden the baseball bat in some tall grass behind the house. Michael confessed that he only killed his grandmother because he didn't think she could handle living alone without her husband. Michael told the detectives, I loved my grandmother, but I couldn't let I couldn't let her live by herself. He said that his grandfather was in a mean, old, and completely insensitive. In Michael's words, he said he didn't have a caring, emotional bone in his body. I lost it. I don't remember. It was like a dream or something, a nightmare. My, Michael had absolutely no prior criminal record. And his arrest and confession to the murder of his grandparents completely shocked Michael's co-workers. They described him as friendly and personable. They said he was outgoing. One of his co-workers gave a statement to the press to the Baltimore Sun saying, in his words, he was well-liked here and people are shocked. His co-workers are saddened. He had sound references and maintained a good performance record. All of his background checks were cleared. It was a shock to everybody. Some of Michael's co-workers were so shocked and traumatized by Michael's actions like that they literally had to get counseling themselves from where they worked at, from Shepard Pratt's critical incident stress debriefing team. At Michael's sentencing hearing, the prosecutor set the stage in motion by telling the court, in his words, in a city, your honor, that has around 300 plus murders a year. No exaggeration, y'all. These ranks as two of the most brutal we will ever see. Michael was allowed also to make a statement, and he said, 
I love you. I'm sorry I've hurt you all terribly. I want you to know I understand your anger. Things that happened with Grandpa in my life were not always right. It does not give permission for what I did. Then Michael cried and said he never knew his biological father and that he had hoped for a substitute father only to be physically abused by two other men that his mother had gotten married to. Uh, Mike said that he told his grandfather that he was being physically abused by these two men and his grandfather's response was, well, they only doing it because they love you. His father was old school. I ain't equal lie. You know, it just seemed like Michael just kept getting up excuses, excuses, excuses. The judge felt like, probably like how I do, and he had a few words of his own at Michael's sentencing hearing. And the judge said, I have not been able to comprehend how a human being could do such a thing, especially to his own grandparents who obviously loved him. Anyone who could do something like this, how could anyone say he wouldn't do it again? The judge sentenced Michael to two consecutive life terms in prison. Now, this is a case where he ain't getting out. At least it don't look like he's getting out. Um, I do think... No, I don't think he's in Patuxent. Um, but I believe this is... Sometimes this is what can happen. You know, do I think he was born bad? Like what I started off with saying? I don't know. But when you do too much for your kids, sometimes... Sometimes they expect this that to continue for life and when you do too much and they can't make decisions and they're making teenage decisions and stuff like this you gotta you 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 understand the tough love and stuff like that but this he was probably spoiled i mean to beat somebody over and over with a bat of like your frail grandparents that's sick and, and then go on a trip hours later you are a psychopath I mean, most people have been, like I said, most people have been released, but he ain't. I can bet you that he won't. This crime was too brutal. He can't claim like, oh, I was abused or I was being, like he said, I was being physically abused because what? Because they gave you a beating? This, this He got to be a millennial. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't, plus he wasn't a juvenile. He was a 30-year-old. So, no, he ain't no millennial, but he, he was a 30-year-old. And one who wanted to live off his grandparents. And you beat them with a bat? You thought about that on, on your drive over there. That you was going to beat them with a bat. You you didn't even argue with them. So that was something that he decided that he was going to do on the ride over there. I wonder how his mother feels. You know, that her son killed her parents. That's That's the real victim right here. You know, it's just devastating the whole story when I when I heard about this case this case right here wasn't really talked about a lot I guess um this happened in 94 I do remember when they when it came out because I remember thinking the same way um that I feel now like wow your frail grandparents 80 something years old wow mm. and then I remember hearing about him going on a trip to Jamaica you know with his um married girlfriend what a disaster so yes of course, this one was selected as one of Maryland's most notorious parasite cases. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And just like in every episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where they may have received a lot of attention, a lot of press, you know, a lot of media coverage. Some of them received national attention. This podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press, if any attention at all. These type of murders are so common in the state of Maryland, which is a small state, that it's not really a lot of time to focus on just one particular one, especially, you know, if you're not like a kid or something like that. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it, you other than just the initial report that you hear about on the news. That's it, if it even makes the news. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering, completely unbelievably mind-boggling. It's obvious that homicide detectives can't really do it all by themselves, like what you might see on Forensic Files or Court TV or The First 48. In Maryland, it's not like that. It's not like every case is hit for DNA and stuff like that. Homicide detectives are often overworked, underpaid, under stresses, keep it real, and flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time. You know, sometimes you might wonder, what happened to those cases where nobody is talking at all? What happens when there are absolutely no clues, no evidence, no witnesses, nothing? And, you know, the victim, their life mattered. What happens when, you know, the cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle where it seems like the detectives ain't really doing trying to investigate the case because the quote the victim quote unquote had it coming. I mean, they might be like, Oh, he was selling drugs, you know, what they expect or this person was out here tricking, what they expect, you know. It's like stuff like that. It's like it just literally seems like, you know, did these killers did they really did they really get away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is being done with these forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares anymore, especially the family, but because the public simply just forgot all about it because we have been bombarded by so many new homicides that take its place. It's like we have been immune to homicides in the state of Maryland. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side... A focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 23-year-old Raycole Lavette Harris. On Saturday, October 1st, 1994, Around 11 p.m., 
a 911 dispatcher got a call from a woman who said that multiple people were trying to break into her home in the first block of Heatherton Court in Woodlawn in Baltimore County. After telling the 911 dispatcher this, the call just went dead. The 911 dispatcher called the number back, but somebody picked up the phone, then hung the phone up again. The 911 dispatcher called the number back a third time. This time, somebody picked the phone up again, but wouldn't say nothing. Four minutes after that first 911 call was made, at 11.04 p.m., Baltimore County police officers showed up to the house to investigate the 911 call. And when they went inside the home, they found the body of 23-year-old Raycole Lavette Harris. And she had been shot multiple times. Inside the home was also Raycole's 2-year-old daughter who was left unharmed. Raycole was rushed to Northwest Medical Center in Randallstown, but she was pronounced dead soon after arriving. Raycole was the mother of a two-year-old daughter and a seven-month-old son who had been in the hospital receiving open-heart surgery at the time his mother was killed. And this wasn't the first time Raycole's house had been broken into either. Earlier that same year, in 1994, on June 4th, four men reportedly broke into Raycole's home. Then, when they, like, after they broke into her home then, where they got her out of bed, they tied her up, and stole jewelry and several hundred dollars in cash. Raycole had also reported this burglary incident to the police, and nobody was ever charged or arrested in this particular robbery. Maybe they came back? It's hard to tell because this time, nothing was taken out of her home. Raycole had graduated from Woodlawn High School in 1989 and had a passion for modeling clothes and doing hair. In fact, she worked as a hairdresser and did people's hair from the comfort of her own home, even though she had plans to open up her own beauty salon. Raycole was the only child to her parents, and she herself was a very devoted mother to her own kids. The detectives determined that nothing was taken out of Raycole's home. There was no money or drugs found in the home, but the detectives don't think that Raycole's murder was some sort of random homicide, and they feel that she was definitely targeted. Several neighbors did come forward and report to the police that they did see as many as three people running from Raycole's home that night. Unfortunately, no arrests have been made and no further clues or tips were ever obtained. So if you have any information that you want to provide in this unsolved homicide, please, please call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943. Or you can text your tip to CRIMES, that's C-R-I-M-E-S, and on your numeric keypad, that's 274637. Once again, those numbers are Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP, 
or Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943. Or you can text your tip to CRIMES, that's C-R-I-M-E-S, on your numeric keypad, that's 274-637. There is a $2,000 cash reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction for this 29-year-old homicide. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to click check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that if I just, just out of the blue, just boom, woke up one day and then, you know what? I'm going to start a true crime podcast. But nope, that ain't even hardly true. Those that really know me, they know that they that this is a real, there's a real therapeutic message to this world of true crime that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, why I'm so crazy, why I'm so true crime driven, why I'm so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very, very soon, very soon, probably before um, or with the beginning of season nine, that the documentary version, the film version of this podcast episodes number one, which focused on accused child murderers, Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza will be released very, very soon. It's a three-part series. The first part will be released. The first part is, like I said, it's very, very gory. I have to put that disclaimer out there. It is not something that you can watch with kids or for people that are sensitive and stuff like that. This is really what really happened in this particular case. And when the documentary, which was produced by Savage Life Productions, and filmed on location in Baltimore City will be available for download. I will definitely keep you guys posted as to where you can download it. And while you're at it, stop on over to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. Um, and Mer- Maryland is spelled MDS. Um, this is where you can access all episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like relationship. Uh, killers, um, uh, mental illness killers, stuff like that, all different variations. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. And if you really want to do some research on me, <laughs> you can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray, who was also uh, profiled on this podcast for, I guess, the Relationship Killers episode, Season You can also check me out on TV1's Justice By Any Means, TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer 
uh, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled uh, the last episode's uh, killers, Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong. Once the Season 1 documentary is available for download, you'll also be able to find the links here at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production. <laughs>